Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Somebody once wrote, hell is the impossibility of reason. That's what this place feels like, hell. I hate it already and it's only been a week. Some goddamn week, Grandma. The hardest thing I think I've ever done is go on point three times this week. I don't even know what I'm doing. A gook could be standing three feet in front of me and I wouldn't know it. I'm so tired. We get up at 5 a.m., hump all day, camp around 4 or 5, dig a foxhole, eat, then put out an all-night ambush or a three-man listening post in the jungle. It's scary because nobody tells me how to do anything because I'm new. Nobody cares about the new guys. They don't even want to know your name. The unwritten rule is a new guy's life isn't worth as much because he hasn't put his time in yet. And they say if you're going to get killed in the Nam, it's better to get it in the first few weeks. The logic being, you don't suffer that much. If you're lucky, you get to stay in the perimeter at night. And then you pull a three-hour guard shift. So maybe you sleep three, four hours a night, but you don't really sleep. That is a clip from the 1986 movie Platoon. On today's episode of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, I'm joined by Frank Scalero. Frank is a veteran of the Vietnam War, and he has uh, some really amazing, uh, at times heartbreaking, um, and at other times entertaining stories about his time in the war. I met Frank back in December, and um, he was talking to me about his experiences and his stories, and I thought that this would make for a really good podcast episode. These are some stories that are pretty difficult for Frank to talk about, so I'm really appreciative of the fact that he was willing to join me, and I hope that I did him justice in our conversation. Uh, this was recorded in Middle Island, New York, which is on Long Island. Uh, in the episode, we talked about an interview that Frank had done, and I, I tried to find that on the internet, and I wanted to put it in the show notes, so I apologize that I could not find that. If we find it in the future, I'll put that up retroactively. I was going to give like a short history of uh, the Vietnam War, but instead, I, I think that's how everybody kind of learns about the wars in school and things like that. And, you know, that's not necessarily a, a personalized account of the war. So instead, uh, I'll, le- I'll largely leave uh, our conversation as, um, you know, the source of education for you. But I did want to end today's quick intro with a reading from a novel called The Sorrow of, the Sorrow of War. Uh, this is by Bao Nin. And it's, it's a little bit of a difficult read in the sense that it's a little schizophrenic. It's, it's kind of hard sometimes to, um, to, to, to tell where in time the author is. He kind of jumps around from the past to the present to the future without giving a clear indication of the time frame in which he's talking about. But uh, I think it's important because it is a North Vietnamese account of the war. And what I'm going to read for you today is a passage that comes after a situation in the novel that is really similar to a situation in All Quiet on the Western Front. If you've read All Quiet on the Western Front or you've seen the movie, you know that there's this scene, and I'm, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm recollecting this uh, correctly and properly, but there's a, like a bombed out uh, crater, and the main character is down in that crater to avoid enemy fire, and uh, an enemy, right, air quotes, kind of, well, literal enemy, but um, jumps into the crater, and the main character kills him. And the guy's sort of like slowly dying on top of him, and then the main character goes to the man's wallet and, and finds a, a photo of, of his family. Uh, so there's a really similar situation in this book. Um, I'm not going to read that whole part where um, the main character kills his enemy. In, in, in this situation, his enemy is a South Vietnamese man. But uh, he talks about uh, killing him and the guy dying this slow death and moaning and it's really graphic so I'm not going to read the whole thing but it talks about stabbing him and there's there's blood and guts and all that um, but this is his reflection 
after that incident. Now, even after many years, whenever I see a flood, I feel a sharp pang in my heart and think of my cruel stupidity. No human being deserved the torture I left him to suffer. After many years of peace, Fan was still tormented by the memory. Would the drowned man ever stop floating through his mind? The sorrow of war inside a soldier's heart was in a strange way similar to the sorrow of love. It was a kind of nostalgia, like the immense sadness of a world at dusk. It was a sadness, a missing, a pain, which could send one soaring back into the past. The sorrow of the battlefield could not normally be pinpointed to one particular event or to one person. If you focused on any one event, it would soon become a tearing pain. It was especially important, therefore, to avoid, if possible, focusing on the dead. I hope you enjoyed this conversation that I had today with Frank. Um, be sure to leave me some feedback. I'll be back in Vietnam in about maybe a week's time after this episode is released. So um, there will be a brief hiatus, and um, then I'll hopefully have some, some great uh, recordings and conversations for you from Southeast Asia again. All right, folks, enjoy it. As always, take care of each other. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, everyone. Today, I'm here with Frank Scalero. How are you, Frank? I'm doing well, thank you. So I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, I met you back in December, and you had some really fascinating stories from the time that you served in Vietnam. Uh, so I did want to focus on that today, if that's cool. Sure. Great. So Frank, uh, so that people get to know you a little bit, uh, where are you from? Where am I from? Yeah. Now I live in Mount Sinai, Long Island. Mount Sinai, Long Island. And you grew up in Brooklyn, is that true? I grew up in Deer Park. Oh, in Deer Park. Yeah. Did you spend time in Brooklyn or does that come in later? No, I was never in Brooklyn. Okay, okay. So that Staten will, Island. Okay. <laughs> that will come, uh, there is, I think there's a Brooklyn connection later. That now I'm. It, it's coming back to me. Okay. Um, so talk about, I guess, a little bit your experiences Um in New York prior to being drafted? Like, what, what, was, what were the, like your teen years like? Oh, my teen years? Well, we, we moved around a lot when I was young because my father was in the service and then he, was, he had uh, several different jobs and we always moved where his job was. So. But from 11 years on, I lived in Deer Park. Okay. And I, and I, went, to, uh, I went to Deer Park Elementary School. And back then, Deer Park didn't have their own high school. So I got bused to Babylon, and I, I did four years in Babylon High School. Did your father serve in Korea? He served in World War II. Wow. He was a, um, a technician on a, on a B-17. What do they call them? There's a certain name for it. I can't remember. Mm. Oh, um, crew chief. Okay. He was crew chief, on, and uh, he was stationed in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor. Oh, wow. And he was an avid fisherman. He was on, on when uh, the day that the Japs, uh, Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, wow. he was fishing in Pearl Harbor. You're kidding me! In a rowboat, when the when the planes came in and started attacking, and he rowed ashore, uh, ran across his airfield, got into his plane and pulled it out. Of, it was they were all lined up, pulled it out of the line, so it wouldn't get mowed down with the rest of the, with the rest of the planes. Oh, my God. And he couldn't get any weapons. The only thing he can get a hold of was a forty-five, and that's what he had to shoot at the Japanese with was a forty-five. What did, did he talk about those types of things to you when you were he, young? Later on, he did, just like me. I didn't, I didn't yeah. talk about it that first from Vietnam. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so because of his service, was there an expectation that you would serve one day? No, not no, at all. Okay. No. So that was never like an ambition of yours or something no, like that. No, my ambition was to be a carpenter because he was a car he was a carpenter, and I knew what I wanted to do because he had me like five years old. He has pictures of me building an aluminum boat with him. 
he would punch wow. it and I would drill it. And so I always had, you know, worked with my hands. Wow. So had you started carpentry or had you started in college or anything like that? I had started carpentry. And back then the draft was uh, was active. Mm-hmm. And you had at 18, you had to go and get your draft card. And because I was a carpenter apprentice, they treated the same as a college student. And I got a 2S deferment for four years. Oh, wow. So I figured, wow, four years, the war will be over. Right. <laughs> I figured wrong. So you did that at 18. So then at 22 years old, you were drafted then? Yes. So, And there was a cutoff date. In New York State, if you were married by August 31st, 1967, uh, 1965, if you were married by then, they wouldn't draft you. After that, you had to have a child. And I didn't know about the cutoff date. I got married September 3rd. Oh, my gosh. So I missed the cutoff date by three days. So... How are you notified that you're drafted? I was notified with a thick letter that came in the mail that said, greetings. Oh, my God. You have been uh, inducted into the Selective Service. Some, something, to that, something to that effect. Like report by this date to... Yes, report by this date to Whitehall Street. Oh, my gosh. So what, I, what, like, what are your emotions at the time? What are you thinking? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> this can't be happening. Right. Right? And uh, you have to go to Whitehall Street, and, and they uh, did. I they think they did a physical there at Whitehall Street. Okay. Then you come home, and then you got orders to report to Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn. Okay, yeah. That's where I, I live. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and at uh, Fort Hamilton, you get inducted. But uh, I felt sorry for the guys you know, you had us all lined up, and you said this pledge that you to the to the country and uh, you know into whatever ser- service. And we all, we most of the guys that got drafted got went into the uh, army, right? But everybody in the front line take take one step forward, and they became U.S. Marines. Wow. Yeah, and you know what? They they must have got so much harassment because not many people were uh, drafted into the Marines, so. They oh everybody else in the Marines were volunteers, right? And the guys that got drafted, they get they must have caught hell. So, I mean, so you were drafted into the army. I was drafted into the army. And I mean, was there ever a thought? Because I know that this this did some people did try this and it was successful for some people. Was there ever thought like fake an injury or or something like that? No, I figured it was just my fate and just to make the best out and do the best I could. Wow. Uh, so you you obviously passed your physical. Where do you go from there? From there, they put us on a train. Uh, they they uh, we drove a train overnight and wound up in Fort Jackson. Uh, I think it's Georgia, Fort Jackson, Georgia. Okay. And or North Carolina, somewhere down here in the south. Okay. And they did uh, preliminary testing. They test your aptitude for all you know, radio operator or whatever. Right. And. Uh, after that, they sent us to Fort Gordon, Georgia. And what did you test for? Like, what did they classify you as? Uh, I, you know, I was a full carpenter. I had finished my apprenticeship. Right. I thought they would put me in the CBs or something, construction battalion. But uh, they just sent me to basic training, and they didn't tell me anything. Wow! You just go to basic training. They did want me to take. Um, they said I could have been a helicopter pilot. Okay. But I, I failed the radio test on purpose because oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't want to be walking around with a 10-foot antenna whipping around the air. Oh, wow. And they said if I, t- if I would take that test over again, that I would qualify and pass it, I would qualify for a, um, to be a helicopter pilot, warrant officer. And I said, no, I didn't want to do it. Wow. Because you had to, they had to, you had to uh, enlist for another year to do that. And I, I just wanted to get put my two years in and get out. Wow. So um, I'm going to share some of this online because obviously this is audio and it's not visual. But you have some amazing pictures from uh, from your tr- like basic training, I guess. Basic, I, yes, basic training and advanced infantry training. Advanced and I infantry had training. no idea I was going there. After I finished um, uh, basic training, they put us on a plane and sent us to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Wow. And if you look at this picture here, okay, this is the first thing I saw when I got to Fort Polk, Louisiana. So I'll describe to people. This is you right here um, with a sign, Tiger Land, um, fight, win, fight, win, birthplace of combat infantrymen for Vietnam. 
So this is your welcome sign. That was my welcome sign. Wow. And my heart went boom. <laughs> I gave my pack of cigarettes away. I wanted to be in the best shape I could be in. Wow. I stopped smoking. <laughs> and so you don't you don't really know anyone. Like is it No, easy, I didn't know anyone. Is it easy to find camaraderie with people? Like did you meet uh, Yeah, people? no, camaraderie was was solid. There was no problem with that. Everybody okay. was in the same boat. We all knew where we were going. You pull up to the place and there's a sign telling you where you're going. Right. So what was the training like? The training was excellent. Um, you know, they, we, in basic training, you learned on an M14. And when you got the advanced infantry training, you were trained on an M16. Okay. M16, grenade launcher, 50 caliber machine gun, which I qualified expert on. Wow. In fact, I had so many rounds left over, I helped the guy next to me shoot down <laughs> his targets at 1,000 yards. Um, all... Um, Radio communications, which we didn't get too much because they had a special radio school there, but, you know, you learned the basics. Uh, reading the maps and, and uh, interpreting the scales and stuff like that. Okay. Um, bivouac, we went out. We had, like, a forced march out into this, out into nowhere in Fort Polk, and we sleep overnight uh, a couple of nights. We ran into wild pigs that were, like, about eight feet long. They were wow. huge. Um, Did they get shot? No, we didn't shoot them. No, no okay. we didn't shoot them, no. Uh, we had our rifles, but we didn't have any, you know you didn't have any live ammunition with you. Okay. Uh, and you know, and and training on the rifles, escape and evasion. Oh, escape and evasion night was un- unbelievable. They bring you into this wooded area. You have to make it back to back to the base. Uh-huh. And in the wooded area, uh, the cadre is posted there, and they try to capture you. Wow. Yeah, at <laughs> night. And some of the guys got captured, and they were tortured. They were put into like ice baths. Whoa. And uh, I don't know what beat up or whatever happened to them, but I was I was going through the infiltration course, and I found somebody hiding in a hole, and I got to jump on them. I thought it was the cadre, but it was one of the other trainees. And he said, "No, no, no, I'm not. I'm not a cadre. I'm not a cadre." <laughs> <laughs> wow! Did any of the trainees then not like? If you were failing these tests, would they not send you? Uh, I'll tell you the one incident that I remember. The person, one person tried to get out of not going, mm. and he came out of the out of the uh, the mess hall and put his hands up in the air and screamed on top of his lungs and ran full speed into the building across the way and bounced off and knocked himself out. Was he trying to act crazy? He was trying to act crazy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It didn't get him anywhere. No. <laughs> so they sent him. <laughs> I, I don't know, but he was still in training when I was there. Wow. Um. So, once you once you go through training, what's the next step from there? The next step from training is they sent me home. Oh, really? For thirty day uh, for the thirty day leave. Okay. Right now, I had I spent uh, time in Fort Jackson, eight weeks in uh, in Fort Gordon, nine nine or ten weeks in um, uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. They sent me home for a thirty day leave. Now I have a wife who's now right. I have a wife at home who's now pregnant. Wow! She got pregnant the night the night before I left. Wow! Uh, so I went back to work. I worked for those thirty days that oh I was God. off. How are you? That's incredible because like I'm wondering like, what's your mindset like? Are you thinking about it? Are you nervous? Uh, oh yeah, I was nervous. Yeah. And then some jerk on a uh, some jerk on a job tells me you know you might not even come back. And the wow. other guys all yell at him. What are you crazy telling the kids something like that? What is what is your impression at that point of the war? Are you thinking, I'm going to go there and I'm going to do some good? I don't know why I'm going. Uh, what was your, your Our impression is they brainwash you into that we're fighting communism, right? Okay. That's, that's what you're told in your training, right? And you have to defend our country and defend our way of life, our, our politics, our right. way of thinking. And what I'm thinking is I want to be in the best shape I can be in right. and do the absolute best and keep myself alive over there. Did you think you were well prepared? Uh, I have to say the training really saved my life. Wow. Cool. I'm, I'm, I mean, not cool, but I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get to that, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so the, when the end of the year 30 days are up, uh, where, do you, where do you report to? Um, well, my family takes me to um, JFK. Oh, okay. All right, and they had me booked on a flight to go to uh, Washington. What the heck was the name of the fort up there? I can't remember the name of the fort. Okay. I was only there a couple of days. In Washington, D.C.? No, Washington, state of Washington. Oh, okay. Uh, 
I, I can't remember the name of the fort. Okay. But, you know, you, you go there and um, they get you prepped. You're like there two or three days. It was rainy and cold all the time over there. Uh-huh. This was in October. Okay. And um, they put you on a, a jetliner with c- civilian personnel. And they fly you non- nonstop. Uh, no, no, we stopped in Alaska. We oh, went wow. up to Alaska, I guess regassed. We didn't get out of the plane. And then we flew to Vietnam. It was like an 18-hour flight or something like that. Wow. Then... Regular stores. And we landed... Uh, it, wasn't, it was a commercial flight? It was a commercial flight, yeah. But so you were on with all army recruits? Yeah, everybody okay. was on in the army. Flight. You know, wow. the, the, the army had uh, rented this right. plane. Okay. Okay. And we landed in uh, a very secure area called Cameron Bay. Oh. All right. And Cameron Bay, uh, you spend a couple of days there and there's barracks and you sleep in the barracks and everything. And uh, there's, a, there's a beach. Uh, we, I didn't get to go to the beach, but um, we, they had drive-in movies at night. You took your chair outside oh, no and they way. set up a drive-in movie. Yeah. Wow. And then um, I was assigned to the 1st Cavalry, and the base camp is in Anke. And so they put us on, a, I think, a C-130 and flew us up to Anke. Okay. Now, in Anke, before you join your unit, they send you to an additional week of jungle school. What's that like? You got to go out with live ammunition out into the jungle and actually actually go on patrols, and they teach you how to, how to control, how to... How to uh, acting when you're on a control and things to look out for and stuff wow. like that. So we did a week of jungle school. So, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people who will listen have been to Vietnam. I've been there. It is hot. Like what, <laughs> what, what sort of equipment are you carrying? Like uh, what I, is that like? When I, when I first the got there, all right, after, after, oh, they teach you how to repel. There's a, there's a repelling tower. Wow. Yeah. So we, we learned how to repel. We learned about, you know, booby traps and stuff like that. And uh, being on patrol and being quiet and spacing yourself out and doubling back on your trail. So. Wow. Uh, so we went, uh, well, I got assigned to the 5th to the 7th, which is General Custard's old outfit. Oh, my God. Hmm. And <laughs> we got flown out by helicopter into the field. And six of us from jungle school were assigned to one squad. There's only 10 men in a squad. Okay. And the sergeant says to us, Oh, thank God you guys are here. And I said, why is that, Sergeant? He says, you replaced the six guys that got killed yesterday. So what's going through your head at that point? Oh, you're going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is, you know, this is the real deal. You're, you're going to be in the heart of it. Now, within, I would say, in less than an hour, they tell us, put on your battle gear. We're going into a hot LZ. A hot LZ means they're going to be shooting at you as you come in. Coming out of the helicopter? Coming in out of the helicopter as the helicopter comes in. Now, they... We took some hill, the Viet Cong were on top of some hill. They softened it up with artillery fire, uh, sent some gunships in to soften up the position. And we come in on the choppers, on the skids, like in Apocalypse Now. Oh, my God. This is first day of Cav now, right? And we come in on the skids, and they don't even land. They just come in about three feet off the, off the ground, and you jump off. And a guy I went to jungle school gets shot in the head, and he's dead. And this is this is your your first, first day in the field, and yours, yeah. Holy crap! And that night I tried, and we were up on top of the hill was hard pan, and it was very hard to dig a foxhole in the hard pan. But I dug, I dug and dug until I could get get down below, uh, you know, squat down and not be shot at. Are you so trained that it's second nature, or when something like? Um, the man in your squad that that got shot and killed like is that affecting you it's, you know what you're under fire yeah you just do what you got to do and you just keep 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 on going you know looking for the enemy and shooting at them meanwhile they just they just threw him back on the chopper and that was it he was out of there wow do you do you know about um where i guess like geographically like you're, you're still yeah, in the we, south or you yeah, crossed over no we didn't cross over we were around uh, Danang. Dunning, okay. LZ English, LZ Colt, LZ Baldy. Wow. Okay. Um, so that first night, gosh, that I mean, that what's that like? It's, it was scary. You're Could out you there. In the center, you're not. You're in the dark. You're out there in the dark. In the jungle? Well, no, we're on top of a hill. Okay. We're on top of a hill. And uh, it's all hard pan. You couldn't dig. And, you know, 
So I dug, I dug as far as I could get, get down maybe three or four feet. Then, then you dig a little chute on the side in case they throw a hand grenade in. You push the, push the hand grenade in the chute, takes you out of the line of fire. And and there was obviously I guess there was live firefighting throughout the night. Or no, no. no. Okay. After we after we got in and we got settled down, they, they the, the Vietcong blew back. Okay. So we didn't have any more contact that night. So it's just a few of you because you had said the six guys and then there's five now. I'm assuming that was in my squad, but the in whole the whole company attacked that hill. Oh, okay. The whole company and our company would be 100 160 men, but we didn't have a full strength. Wow. No, the whole company came in on top of that hill. So how long were you there? One day. One day. Then we moved on. Okay. And, oh, I left out the important part. Okay. In the middle of the fire pot fight, I had one of the old M16s and a jam. I had no weapon. So what do you do? Nothing. There's nothing you could do. So do you try to get down into the little foxhole you dug? And no, well, this is right when we first landed. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is right when we and first landed. And there's no landed. backup gun? Or? No, there was no backup gun. All you got was the M16. So you don't have a handgun or anything? No. So I told the sergeant, I don't, this thing jammed on me, and I don't want it. And that's because they, they hadn't chromed the chamber yet on, the, on uh-huh. the M16. After they chromed the chamber, they will find they didn't, they didn't jam up anymore. So I said, I want a grenade launcher. And with a grenade launcher, you got a forty-five. So, so you got that. So I got the grenade launcher and a forty-five. So I always had two weapons. Oh my God, that's so crazy! And then the next week, everybody got new M16s, <laughs> <laughs> including you. No, I didn't. No, you had the grenade launcher. <laughs> wow. Um, so, were you? Did you stay around Danaing, or did they move you from there? They moved us, and you know, you're on a need-to-know basis. Get in the chopper. We're going here. We're going there. You don't even know where you're at. Wow. The sergeant, the sergeant has the map. Okay. You know, we were PFC. We went over there as PFCs. So we didn't tell us anything. You know, we just went out. We went out on patrol. We went out on saber missions. We went out on listening posts. We went out on night ambushes. Whoa. Yeah. What's what's a night ambush like? Right, let me tell you what a night ambush is like. Once at, at twilight. You leave your area and you're sent to a designated area where they suspect heavy enemy tra- heavy enemy traffic, and this is like just that twilight. And once you leave the perimeter of your of your company that has formed up like a uh, wagons, you know, in a circle, mm-hmm. we put all our little tents together and dig all our foxholes. Once you leave that, you can't come back till daylight because you won't have enemy with you. Whoa. All right. Now we go through. We go th- over a hill through um, a cornfield, but the corn had already been harvested, so it's just the furrows. Uh And alongside this rice paddy, there's this very heavily traveled trail. And we go in about a a quarter mile, half mile, somewhere around there, and we start setting up an ambush. We put trip flares across this trail. We're all lined up on one side. As we're setting up the ambush, the vehicle walk into us. Now... Here's the M60 machine guns going off, the AK-47s, M16s, people screaming, yelling, crying. They got they walked into the ambush before we were fully set up. Oh my God. Now, all right, gather everything up and we're going this way. And I'm the last in line. I'm looking behind me. I'm looking behind me. I said, something's not right here. And the sergeant says, we're going the wrong way. We've got to turn around and about face. Now I'm first in line. Oh, my God. And we got to walk right past the place where, where the ambush occurred and the wounded Viet Cong, or you could hear them moaning in, in the jungle all off the trail. And we walk past there. We get back. We can't go back to our, we can't go back to our company. You can't use the radio because it makes too much noise. We go into the field, the furrow. And this is only a squad of us, only like nine or ten guys. We go into the field and we lay down in the furrows, lay down on our backs with our weapons across our chest, and it starts raining. And we're laying there in the rain. And our sister company gets attacked. They call for illumination flares. The illumination flares come right over our position and light up our whole position like it's daylight. And the canisters that carry them are landing right behind us, just missing us. So they break radio sounds. They said, get that, get, get that illumination off of us. And the illumination goes away. And we're laying there all night waiting for it to get light. And just at dusk, a company of North Vietnamese regulars walk right past us, maybe 100 feet from us. And we're just laying there being as quiet as we could be and just praying that they don't see us. And they're walking like it's nothing and they're joking around. And they walk, and they walk down this trail and they go into the jungle. 
Wow. <laughs> uh, on something like that, like an ambush, is the mission shoot to kill? Or are you trying to capture specific no, people? No, shoot to kill. Shoot to kill. Shoot okay. to kill. Uh, we used to do things like we'd go into a, like a small village, right? Mm-hmm. Gather up all the people. Put them on a Chinook helicopter. You know, they'd hold, they would hold 60 villages on a Chinook helicopter. Right. There's, no, there's no military age, man. Yeah. Military age men are either the Viet Cong or, the, or their Arvins. Okay. Which, okay. Um, shoot all the livestock and burn and burn the grass huts down. Why now, shoot the livestock? Because any because after you shoot the livestock and burn down the houses, anything that moves is your enemy. Wow. They made what they call they called it a free fire zone. They made a free fire zone out of it. Wow. So I have pictures of of the hooches burning. I have hooches. I have pictures of people being gathered up in the village. Pictures of the people getting on the uh, on the um, not the Huey, the other one, the, the Chinooks. Wow. Um, I apologize in advance if anything I ask is like uh, not the right thing to ask yeah. or offensive. Yeah. So it was, it was just, hard. It's hard to talk about it at yeah. first. I mean, I couldn't talk about it at all. Okay. Yeah. And just let me know if okay. if, if anything's too much. But. Um, so, wow. Um, so I know that I know that you were injured. Like, how how far into your uh, deployment and combat were you injured? Three months. Three months. So, wow, you were there three for months. Three we months. were. We, they had intelligence that the uh, fire base was going to be attacked. Okay. It was just the beginning of Tet. They were just war- oh, warming wow, up Tet for Tet. Tet. You know, they were moving in their ammunition and their, and their weapons and stuff. It was it was January January fifth. We were up on top of the hill over one of the fire bases. I think it was uh, LZ Baldy. I'm not. I'm really not sure which one it was. And um, we were up there as a fire as a, a blocking force, so they couldn't come over the hill and have the the height advantage over the over the fire base. But they realized that we were up there, and they swept around us, and they attacked that night. And they tried to get through the perimeter, but they couldn't get through because it was so heavily armed and it was protected by the C-130 with the Gatling gun, uh, Puff the Magic Dragon would just come in and pivot around and lay down a field of fire wow. until it was out of ammunition and it would fly off and another one would fly in. And that's what, that's what we got to see that night. And the next day there was I don't know, a, lot of, a lot of dead Vietnamese around the perimeter of that fire base. Wow. And the next day we went on patrol, just a squad, my 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 friend, the guy who I snapped my poncho together with to make a tent at night, he was walking point with an M16. I was second with a uh, with a grenade launcher and a, and a 45. And uh, we're walking on what would be a, a wet weather stream. If it was raining, the water would wa- would run down here, mm-hmm. but it wasn't raining, so we're just walking on the rocks, right? And he's about you know about 20 feet ahead of me. He says, "Frank, be quiet. I heard something." So what'd you hear? Ba-boom. What he heard was a hand grenade land between us. And he fell on his face. So he heard the actual grenade just like hit the ground. He heard it hit the ground. Oh, my God. And he, he fell on his face, and the blast picked me up and threw me on my back. And about a couple of seconds later, another one lands about 10 feet, of, 10 feet away from me, and it goes, poof, it was a dud. So I'm laying there. Everybody else had pulled back. I get back, you know, into a position where I could fire from, and uh, the guys, the guys who pull back, say, "Are you okay?" I said, "Yeah, I'm fine." But uh, the, the the guy in front of his name was James Bailey, and we used to call him Beetle Bailey. I said, Beetle. "Yeah, I said Beetle's turning purple up here. Get up to get up to Beetle," and they get to him and they try to revive him. They can't revive him. He got hit in the head uh, in the temple with shrapnel. All right, they said to me, "Are you okay?" I said, "Yeah, I'm fine." And one guy says. Hey, here's your watch. I said, my watch? Where'd you get my watch? It's laying on the ground here. My parents had sent me a calendar skin diver's watch. It got shot off my wrist. Wow. And it stopped. I have the time and the date that I got wounded on the watch. You still have it? I still have it with That's my purple heart. All right. Now they said, can you go on patrol? I go, yeah. I go to stand up. I can't stand up. So they call in a they call in a chopper. Chopper can't land because we're on the side of the hill. Are you? I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Are you thinking, "Hey, I'm injured. Oh, this is bad. Like I can't." Well, get I didn't. Well, I must have been in shock because I was I was ready to go back on patrol, but then I couldn't walk. Wow. Because my knees, my legs gave out from under me. Right. Wow. So they 
they call in a chopper, the chopper comes and hovers, sends down a harness, they put the harness on me, and now I'm dangling under the chopper where I just got wounded, expecting to get shot out of the air. And nothing happens. They pull me up, and the chopper is still hovering. You got to give the, the helicopter pilots a lot of credit. <laughs> All right? And now they send it down, and they're having a hard time because the other guy is dead, and they're trying to put, it on, put the harness on him to pull him up. Finally, they pull him up. And they zoom off. I'm sitting on my helmet. Turn your helmet upside. Turn the helmet down. And sitting on the helmet in case any bullets come around. Yeah. And uh, they don't shoot at us. And they take me to a field hospital. And they cut off my clothing. I'm wounded in both legs, my abdomen, my chest, and up and down my left arm. Shrapnel. Shrapnel from the grenade. Wow. And uh, I got a, I had gotten a letter from one of the one of my uh, buddies in my squad. He wrote and told me that the reason they didn't shoot at me is we were 50 feet away from a weapons cache that they had dug into the side of the hill. They found it the next day. And that in, because that would have exploded. The, if they, well, that would, it would have gave their position away oh. if they shot us. That's where they threw the hand grenades. Um, so, so through the grace of God, I was able to survive that. Wow. Were they able to get the shrapnel out? Most of it. Most of it. They couldn't get the the one that broke my wrist bone. It was too deep in my wrist. And I've been picking pieces out of myself for 49 years now. There's a piece coming out of the back of my leg right here. It it, it works its way out of the skin eventually? Oh, my God. Um, Frank, I think this is the Brooklyn connection now, right? Because you had been sent to um, the doctors there in in Vietnam, I believe. Oh, yeah. I went went to the field hospital in Vietnam. Then he sent me back to a secure hospital at Cameron Bay. And he sent me to Japan where I was operated on. Oh, wow. I didn't know it was oh, Japan. Oh, I know what you I know. I know yeah. <laughs> okay. And while I was, while I was in um, the hospital, I, um, a lady came around and she was uh, talking to the guys. And, and she says, uh, she was a social worker. And she says, uh, the reason I'm here is because my husband is the surgeon who's going to operate on you. And he turned out to be an Italian surgeon from the, from Brooklyn, New York. Wow. And she happened to notice my wedding band. She says, do you have, I see you're married. Do you have any children? I said, no. Going my wife, wife's expecting one next month. So she must have told her husband. And he came around with a, with a group of doctors about an hour later. They're making their rounds and discussing each case. And uh, uh, they said, uh, well, how come this guy's going home? He one broken bone and, you know, and all these these flesh flesh wounds and he says yeah he's having a baby next month let him go home and that's how that's how i got to come home or else they would have sent me back to vietnam maybe not out in the field but you know so that's where i looked out there wow what was your what was your return like because i know um well i mean not that i've experienced it but i know that there were there was a lot of anti-war sentiment Yes. Um, but at the same time, like I think you've kind of pointed out, hey, we're young guys either kind of influenced to fight or thought we were doing the right thing, and we come home and there's like all this backlash against us. What was it like for you coming home? It wasn't too bad, but you know, you didn't talk about it. Mm. You didn't. I didn't wear my uniform or anything like that. You right. Know? When I, in fact, when I, you come home on a military flight because you're you're a, a serviceman, you know, it doesn't cost anything. But I changed. I changed my out of my uniform. I went into civilian clothes on the flight. Wow. Um, at what point in your life were you, were you uh, I guess, comfortable enough to talk about your experiences? I kept having nightmares and, and you know, and dreams and, mm-hmm. like, everything would, like, set me off, like, fireworks when you're not expecting it and stuff right. like that. So I started going to the VA and uh, uh, for PTSD. Yeah. And uh, I always said, oh, yeah, you definitely got it. Right. I mean, and, how could you not? Yeah. And so um, they... Uh, told me that, you know, it's better to discuss it, and I joined a discussion group. But that was worse because everybody was talking about all the different experiences that they had, right, you know? Yeah, and you had to relive it every twice a week. So I, I dropped out of that, but I stayed with uh, getting uh, professional help from the VA. Did you have any communication with um, either the, the men that you knew that survived or the families of the men that had been killed in Vietnam? Well, in my squad, only one guy survived besides me that I know oh of. Oh, God. And he wrote, we were in contact after I got out. And he managed to make the, he went up to the DMZ and everything, and he managed to make it out alive. I don't wow. know how. 
but um, we kept in contact for a short while, and then we just faded away. Okay. Um, when I had met you in December, you had talked about how it's it's pretty difficult even now today to watch war movies and things like that. Yeah, because it, it just brings you right back there. And right. it, there was so many incidences. We were in the field. We were in combat or pulling guard duty on a fire base every day. All right. You know, and we got a t- we've been attacked at night. Uh, it was one area that we were working in around Da Nang, near the beach, near the, the the sandy area there. And we went through a little village, and there's no there's no military age men. There's women, children, and old men. And this old man is looking at my sack of grenades because I had the the uh, forty milli grenades, millimeter grenades for the M seventy nine grenade launcher. And this guy can't take his eyes off my grenade. Well, that. That night, we circle up in, on the edge of a rice paddy or some kind of a you know, field or something there, surrounded by woods, and we get attacked with an M79 grenade launcher. Oh, my God. And, and, the, and the rounds are coming in, and they make a distinctive sound when they come out of that barrel. They make a deep plooping sound. Bloop. Yeah. And then you hear the explosion. Then there's a few seconds in between, and boom, the explosion goes off. Well, we made tents out of using our ponchos, my Taking two Y sticks and sticking them in the ground, put a stick across them, snapped your ponchos together, and then you blew up your air, your air matches and you slept in there. At that in that place, if you dug too deep, you were in water. So I just wow. I just dug a, a foxhole that I could put my air mattress in the bottom and get out of the line of fire. And we had to call in artillery around our position. We called in 155, uh, either 155 houses or 16-inch guns from a battleship. And I mean, the, the shrapnel was whizzing over your head. You could go over your head as the uh, as the rounds were coming in. But they did get four Viet Cong that were around our perimeter. Wow. We're calling in the artillery. Is that the so? Is that the strategy when you hear that like blunk? Like, is that the strategy? Get as low as possible. Get no. Wow, you, you you don't expect to get attacked by your own by your own weapon, right? Right. Yeah, you know they had AK forty sevens, which made a distinctive, different sound for M sixteen. So okay. you know when you were getting attacked by that. But everybody knows that plooping sound from the from because it was always me up front. Uh, what they call it, recon by fire. So I if some if some place looked position, lob a grenade in over there, lob a grenade in over there. So everybody would hear that sound. Wow. So you knew that you were being, when you heard it coming in, you knew you were being attacked. Wow. Um, so to circle back, when you, so if you were to, sometimes when you, when you watch war movies and things like that, like all this comes back to you. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, earlier you, you did mention um, Apocalypse Now, right? And yes. I think I, maybe that's a lot of people's reference to the war. Uh, it, <laughs> Do they, do, does that movie get anything right? Are there any movies that kind of get you um, as close to what it actually Platoon was like? Platoon got it right. Platoon. Yeah, Platoon got it right. Apocalypse Now, you know, that was really kind of far out there mm. and surfing and all of that. But that was the first cavalry, which was the unit that I was in. And when they attack, uh, they attack a small village. Ours was similar to that, but our attacks were out in the field. You know, it wasn't in the village. Okay. When we came in on the chapters. Other times, yes. Okay. Um I got to tell you about Thanksgiving Day. Sure. Thanksgiving Day. All right, it's a holiday. We're going to take we're, we're going to take it easy. We're not going to go on any patrols. We're up on top of this plateau and they fly in Thanksgiving dinner to us. And I mean everything from soup to nuts that you guys had at home. We wow. had we had up there on the on top Turkey of the stuff and all that. Turkey, <laughs> cranberry sauce, uh, eggnog and uh they, some some colonels flying over the area, and he sees two Viet Cong walking their water buffalo in a rice paddy with AK-47s on their shoulder. He lands in our perimeter, goes and gets our captain who was in charge of the company, tells him, send the squad down there and get them to, to uh, Viet Cong and out of down there. They pick my squad. All right, guys, put down your Thanksgiving dinner. We got to go out. Got to go on patrol. And they tell us where it's at. We go down there, and sure enough, we walk up, and there they are, two Viet Cong with AK-47s on their shoulder. And they see us, and they run. And they said, Frankie, lay, some, lay down some grenades. I lay some, some grenades down, and I used it like a mortar 
because they were a couple hundred yards away from me. And so I'd shoot it up in the air and then lob it in on a position. Wow. I lobbed and they, and my grenades looked like they were really close to where they would be. And so we're walking, my friend's walking point, different, different guy than the one that got killed. Um, he's walking point with an M16. I'm behind him with a grenade launcher and a 45. There's a big rock. The rice paddy's to our right, the jungle's to our left, and there's a big and there's a path along the edge of the rice paddy. There's a big rock, a boulder about, I'd say about four feet high. And he takes one step past that boulder, spins and empties half a clip of, the, of his M16. There was one of the Viet Cong crouched down there ready to ambush us. Oh my God. Now he says to me, Frankie, and he shot he shot that per half his head off with the M16, with the burst from the M16, and shot his AK-47 in half. Now, he says, Frank, look at this. There's a blood, it's a heavy blood trail. You got the other guy with the grenade launcher. And we followed a blood trail, and it goes up a little trail into the jungle and then into a, into a tunnel. Take a hand grenade out, throw a hand grenade down a tunnel, slap our hands, we're done, let's go back and eat. And that was Thanksgiving Day. Happy Thanksgiving. Wow. Whew. Um, now I mentioned to you that, that <laughs> oh, you, I mentioned to you that training saved my life. Yeah, we're walking through an area, a road that had a lot of heavy tracked vehicles. You could see the tracks from our armored personnel carry and from our tanks, you know. Okay. And there was a pillar there with white stucco on it. Oh, I'd say about maybe fourteen feet high, and a message for us on that on that pillar it said, "Imperialist, imperialist Yankees, get out!" And there's a photo in here of that. Wow. All right. So I'm, I'm off the road. I'm on the side of the road. And I see something that looks like a brass, a brass fitting in the middle of a carpet floor when I want to plug something in. Mm-hmm. There's a brown brass fitting. And, I, and it's covered with clear plastic and sand, but I could see a little bit of it. And I cock my foot back to die, dust it off, and it rings out in my head what they said in training. Don't touch anything if you don't know what it is. And I uncock my leg, I pushed that back one, called the sergeant over, he called in the bomb squad, they took one look at this thing and they said to us, take a walk about a half a mile and break for lunch. We get away and we hear this huge explosion. What I found was one of our 500 pound bombs that had been dropped, it didn't go off, that was set up as a booby trap with a two and a half pound pressure fuse on it. I would have blown up the whole platoon. You had a lot of close calls, Frank. Oh, my God. Wow. One day, one day I step into a rice paddy, and I hear AK-47 open up from the other side, and the bullets go in the water right alongside of me. I turn, and I run. I run into a cactus. I get, I get eight big needles no. stuck in my arm. Oh, my God. Jeez. Um, another, t- another time we go, to cr- we go to cross a rice paddy, and the guy walking point, Gets halfway across, and on the other side is a bank. It's like a three-foot-high bank. Okay. He gets halfway across. They open up on us. I pull back with the grenade launcher. He runs up against the mound. I stand up, and I'm laying down fire for him right over his head with the grenade launcher. And uh, we, we make it across, and we go, and we find a, a basic training area for the Viet Cong. Where they had it all set up like an obstacle course and like that, right? Wow. And a tunnel that was like, I don't know, three foot around and went to like 25 feet straight down and then it branched off from there. So we threw a hand grenade down there. We went through the village, this training village that they had, and we saw the Viet Cong running out the back. We chased them. They ran up in the hill. We fired at them. We don't know whether they got them or not. But uh, my friend, they came so close to killing him. They, we used to wear a camouflage badge like a big, thick rubber band on your helmet. Yeah. Okay, and you stick the branches in that, and we used to stick our uh, insect repellent in it. And uh, they shot that off his head. That's how close he came to getting killed. Oh my God. And when we got back, the captain was up looking uh, up on, uh, on the hill, looking at us, and he says, while I was standing up, laying down the fire for him, somebody off to my right was shooting at me with AK-47, and I didn't know it. Did you... Did you ever work with uh, the South Vietnamese or fight with the South Vietnamese? No, no, it was just Yeah, no. Okay, no, we did not. Well, we had, we did have a scout with us, a Vietnamese scout, and he turned out to be a Viet Cong. 
We had no way. Yes, he turned out to be a Viet Cong. Was what the guy that I was in contact with had told me. So what happened with that? I don't know what happened to him, but somehow they found that he was a Viet Cong. Wow. And uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, I forget. There's, there's so many. There's so many I'm stories. Sure. So many details. Have you ever thought about doing doing something like writing a book or? You know, I did an interview for the National. Purple Heart Hall of Honor. Okay. Up in, uh, there was an ad on TV. It says, if you have a Purple Heart, we want your story. Mm. And so uh, I called them up and they set up an appointment for me up in uh, Newburgh, New York, okay. where um, George Washington was had his winter base camp. Wow. Yeah. So I went up there and I did an interview up there. And you can go and watch the interview. It's a video. Oh, cool. So I'll link to that then. When, 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 when this is posted, I'll link to that so people could find that. Um, you have uh, earlier, it's fascinating. You were showing me you have like a yearbook from your time um, in training. And you had, a, you had a story I wanted you to share about, um, I guess, a pretty difficult, uh, I don't know, uh, the, the, the ranking, I guess, sergeant and, oh, and a recruit. Could you yes. tell that? Oh, we had a sergeant. His name, I don't, can't remember his name. It was like Bellator or something like that. Okay. Uh, and he was wounded in Korea, and he had a brace on his leg, like. Uh, oh, well, uh, we were talking earlier, like Forrest Gump. Gump. Yeah. Like Forrest Gump. <laughs> he had a brace on his, and he was such a mean drill sergeant. And he picked on this one guy constantly, picked mm. on him. I don't know why, just went against the grain with him. And this guy took it and took it and took it until the day we graduated. And then he called a sergeant out. And kicked the crap out of him. Wow! And he wound up in the brig and never <laughs> went to Vietnam. Wow! And I ran into him. No way! I ran into him when I was in Walson Army Hospital recovering from my wounds. Okay. All right. He came up to visit me. I go, holy! How the hell did you know I was here? <laughs> he says, I was outside in the field placing up the papers, and the envelope had blown out of the dumpster with your name and address on it. Wow! That's how he found me. You have some really strange, like <laughs> almost cosmic type of. It's really weird. Um, you also, and I'm going to try to share some of these on on some of my media stuff. You like you have some amazing photos um, of the war that you found in a dumpster. Yes, that it's. I don't know. I happened to notice a, a military envelope in the dumpster. I worked in construction as a carpenter. And I said, "What the hell is this?" And I looked at it, and it was pictures of uh, Chulai Air Base. Wow. And it had some pictures of a wounded, uh, or I should say killed, Viet Cong. They're right. trying to penetrate the uh, perimeter. That's really incredible. It's like it, it, it followed you kind of. <laughs> um, I hope this is okay to ask. Uh, when you, I, I guess either when you were there or when you came home, did you ever feel like sympathy for the enemy? No. 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 Because they were trying you know, to kill you. Yeah, it's kill or be killed. And that's yeah. what you're taught. You know, you're taught you got to survive. You got to kill them. That's what that's, that's drummed into your head. Does it take any time to turn that off when you come home? Um, I did get in a lot of fights. Yeah. Yeah, it does. You're very defensive. Right. I mean, that's part of PTSD. Yeah. I sleep right. with a loaded shotgun. Wow. Not still. 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 Wow. Um, you did talk about going to the VA. Has the VA uh, has been like instrumental in oh, yeah. assistance? Yeah. Yes. That's great. Definitely. You know, they put you on the proper medication. They keep trying, testing this and that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they helped me with my wounds. They they gave me a, an operation on my knee and my knee to replace. Okay. Uh, they did a, a shoulder operation for me. They take excellent care. Okay. Excellent care. You're right. You can access your prescriptions online and reorder your prescriptions. Okay. Um. You know, a lot of these bad stories that you hear about the VA is not the VA up here. Okay. It might be in other parts of the country, but up here they do a bang-up job. That's great. Yeah, wow. Um, I mean, I, I know you have uh, an infinite amount of stories, but is there anything else you think that uh, we should include before we close out? Yeah, or? let me tell you about a Sabre mission. Okay, sure. Sabre mission is where a helicopter gunship will spot Viet Cong or North Vietnamese regular whatever, and herd them into you, into our squad. Wow. All right, it's called, uh, that was a Sabre mission. Right? Okay. The convergence point where these two Viet, Viet Cong was a little village, like about four huts and, you know, a little little uh, farm and 
rice patties and and, and uh, livestock. And we're going through this little farm. And halfway through, one of the Viet Cong was hiding in the vegetable garden, and he realized that he was spotted. And half the platoon had already passed him. The machine gunner had spotted him, but he couldn't shoot him because he was between us Oh wow! <laughs> and the machine gunner, right? And he shot at us from about 20 feet away with an AK-47 on fully automatic. And we all hit the ground. The machine gunner pulled out his 45 and shot him in the head. It was like, I don't know where this guy got his cool from. Wow. Well, it blew half his head off. And then one of the guys put, took a first calf patch, dipped it in his blood and stuck it on his forehead. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I was thinking earlier, um, Vietnam, the Vietnam of today is obviously quite different of the Vietnam during uh, what we call the, Viet the Vietnam War. Um, most of the population has been born after the war um, and the sentiment towards Americans is quite different. Uh, is Vietnam a place you could ever go to or do you think that it, it's, there's too many memories? You know, too many memories and I'm not much of a traveler and with what's going on in the world today, okay. I'll stay in the USA. Okay. Um, to that point, do you think, without trying to get too political, do you think that there's anything that we could learn from the the war with Vietnam that could uh, assist us with our politics today? I, I think it, a lesson should have been learned, but it doesn't seem like it was learned. You know? yeah. I mean, like especially guys that got drafted, we didn't want it. Who wanted to be in a war? Nobody wants to be in a war. Right. You know, without volunteering. Right. So, I don't know. Okay. It's hard. It, you know, we're trying to be the policemen of the world right. and fight for freedom for everybody. But there's some people that, you know, traditions go back thousands of years and you're not going to change that. It's very hard. I mean, I think it would be more successful if it's done from the inside of the country than outside influence. Okay. Um, your kids are grown at this point, but... Um would you be wary at all if your kids had decided to get involved in the military or no. to be deployed? No, okay. if they wanted, you know, if choice. they wanted to do that, then it was fine with me. Okay, they didn't even want to be carpenters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of your one of your kids actually is a is a director. Am I correct? Yeah, he's a, a film producer. Film producer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he listened. He decided to uh, move to Spain. He lives in Spain now. Oh, very cool. Uh, he said he was going to go there for a year, and now it's three years. Uh, we'll see what happens. And he produced a movie with Kristen Stewart in it, right? Yes. What was that? That was The Cake Eaters. Cake Eaters, right, right. I think you can see that on Netflix, so people out there, you can check that yeah, out. Yeah, also he did uh, um, a movie that took um, first place in Sundance back oh, in wow. 2012, and that was uh, Minuto, a Little Brother in Spanish. Oh, wow. Very and cool. And he, he has quite a, quite a, I'd say like about 20 films behind him. And he does commercials. Uh, he was on the International Home Hunters. Wow. His wife is a, a professional author. Uh, okay. She writes for the Washington Post. And um, she, she contacted um, International House Hunters and explained their situation to him and thought that it would be a good idea for a show. Oh, cool. And they did a whole episode on that, moving to Spain. He should do something on you. <laughs> he did. Oh, yeah. He did. He did his. He always wanted to be in films. Uh, at our home, I had I put in a Harrow's pool okay. and built a deck around it. And Harrow's was running this promotion. Uh, take a picture of your Harrow's pool in your backyard and you'll get 10% off your chemicals or something like that, right? So I, I, took, I went up on the roof of my house, took a picture of the pool. We had a deck around, halfway around it, and a deck, and another tied into another deck. And uh, they contacted me and they asked if they could film a commercial in the backyard. Oh, that's cool. And the kids were, you know, it was in the summer, the kids were home from school. I took off from work, and they came in with this 40 foot truck from Harrow's and put the most beautiful furniture all over my deck, gave all the kids blow up toys to play on, and they just played in the pool and they interviewed us and stuff like that. And we went to television for about 10 years, a little cameo shot. Wow, very cool. So he got his inspiration, I think, from that, from seeing the, okay. seeing the commercial made there. Wow. Um, 
Well, Frank, I, I want to thank you. First of all, I know a lot of this, like like you talked about, is not easy to to. No, I don't know if you can hear my voice crack. Yeah, no. Um, so I, I I really appreciate you. Like I I think this is fascinating. I think this is important for people to hear today, and I also just think I think things like this are really important because, um, so like for someone like me, like. I would have known about the Vietnam War when I was younger by reading about it in a textbook or something like that. Right. And you learn about it through statistics and things like that. And it's generally very, you know, very biased and one-sided. And, and so when you can get a real-life example of, of things that were happening, I think that's, that's really valuable for people. Right. And, and I think your, your story adds to the history of it. So uh, I would love to see um, if there's anyone out there that is actually <laughs> listening to this and, and wants to contact you. Um, maybe we'll we'll put your email address or something like that in the show notes for the episode. Okay, sure. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, so thanks so much, Frank. This was great. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks.